I want to read Revelation chapter 12, beginning at verse 1, and read the first six verses and encourage you to follow along with me as we read God's word together. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he, the great red dragon, might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for this, your word. Thank you that we can trust it. Uh, We can believe every word of it because you've spoken it. And now I pray uh, for your spirit, not only for me, but for all of us, that your spirit might help all of us as we seek to understand and I trust be encouraged by this, your word. Lord, be with us. Bless us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Last week, I raised the question that I, that I raise every year. During Advent, first Sunday in Advent, why do we do this? Why do we put these lights up? Why do we put out these trees? Why do we give gifts and all the rest? And the answer to the question why we do it simply is this, because something happened. Something happened. What happened? Well, something pretty significant, pretty decisive must have happened that explains why we put all this greenery out. Uh, something pretty decisive must have happened because the whole world acknowledges it. The whole world acknowledges it. Not just people living in America, but people living in China. Not just people living in America and China, but people living in Brazil, people living in Afghanistan. Like it or not, if you're going to make an appointment with somebody in Brazil, you get out your calendar, you get out your whatever it is you use to make appointments, and you will say, I'll meet you on such and such a date. And that date, say it's next Tuesday, That date will be December 6th, 2011, A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. I don't care where you go on this planet. If you find a newspaper, that date will be on the masthead of that newspaper. Something decisive happened, and the decisive thing that happened is that the eternal second person of the Trinity came into the midst of this world. That's the decisive thing that happened. But that leads to the next question. Why? Why did the eternal Son of God come into the midst of the world? And I want to give you a kind of a different answer to that. A slightly different answer maybe than the answer you've heard before. I say frequently in this 
pulpit and in classes and various places. I'm not here to pick a fight. But I want to suggest to you the reason Jesus came into the world was to pick a fight. There's a great scene in in the film Braveheart. Uh, for those of you who have seen the film Braveheart, where where the Scots, uh, who are fighting for their ind- independence, uh, gather at Stirling Bridge. It's September 11th, 1296. And they're outnumbered in infantry 5 to 1, and they're outnumbered in cavalry 10 to 1. And they amass on the field of battle at Stirling Bridge, and they look across at the English, and the nobles look across at the English, and the nobles ride across the field of battle to try to make terms of peace with the English. And William Wallace comes riding up, and he meets a couple of his friends, and he passes them, and he heads in the direction of the English generals who are coming down across the field of battle. And his friends say to him, William, where are you going? Not bad, eh? <laughs> William, where are you going? And he turns around and he says to his friends, I'm going to pick a fight. I'm going to pick a fight. We have so gutted the incarnation of its power and of exactly what is going on. And this passage reminds us that when Jesus came into the world, he came into the world to pick a fight. That's the reason for the incarnation. He didn't come into the world to pick a fight with you. He came into the world to pick a fight with his great nemesis and adversary. That's why he came into the world. This passage is a great passage. And in a sense, there's a very real sense in which this passage summarizes in six short verses the whole of the story of the Bible, the whole of redemptive history. I actually preached from this last year. I'm going to give you the same three points that I gave you last year because you probably don't remember them from last year. It's okay. I wouldn't have either. Something has happened. That's the main thing. Something has happened. And something is happening right now because that something has happened. And something is going to happen. And the something that is going to happen is going to happen because of the something that has happened. What's the thing that has happened? Well, it's here in this passage. It's here in these verses. And if you read these verses... It ought to become, it it ought to sound vaguely familiar to you because there are essentially three characters here in these verses, aren't there? There's a woman, there's a dragon, and there is the child. And that, that assemblage of characters ought to sound vaguely familiar to you. In fact, if you've been around here for any length of time at all, you're probably thinking, at least I hope you're thinking, Genesis 3, and specifically Genesis 3.15. A woman, a serpent, and the promise of a child. A woman, a serpent, and the promise of a child. Right? That's the seminal promise in the whole of Scripture. You go back to Genesis 3.15. 
God speaks to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That is between the serpent and the woman. I'll put enmity between you and between your seed and her seed. Hostility, enmity, conflict. It's what's going to characterize the whole of human history. But the conflict, the ultimate conflict, isn't going to be a conflict between this nation and this nation, this people group and that people group. The ultimate conflict is a conflict between the people of God, the people of faith, and the people of unbelief. And each of them, each of them, has a head and a king and a ruler. Conflict between your offspring and her offspring. But then if you remember Genesis 3.15, from plural nouns and plural pronouns, the shift is to personal and singular. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who he? Who he? Who the he? The he is the one descendant the single offspring of the woman, a son, a child, who will engage the serpent in conflict. In hand-to-hand conflict. In battle. As each participant brings all of the resources, all of the power, everything that he can drag into this contest, brings all of it into this contest. And in that great conflict, the one who is bruised on the heel, the promised seed of the woman, will crush the head of the serpent. A woman, a serpent, and a child. In Revelation chapter 12, you have those three characters. The woman, the serpent, And the child. Who is the woman? She's described in these verses. In verse 1. As being clothed with the sun. And clothed with the moon under her feet. And on her head. A crown of 12 stars. Who is she? Well that imagery. In the first verse of of chapter 12. Is taken from Genesis 37. Verse 9. It's taken from the story of Joseph and, and Joseph's dream. And if you, if you remember that story, Joseph, who was one of 12 sons, a mother and a father, and the 12 sons, Jacob and Rachel, and the 12 sons, Joseph has a dream. And in his dream, he says to his brothers, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. And the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down before me. The sun and the moon and 11 stars. Who are Jacob and Rachel and the 11 sons together with Joseph, the 12th son, the 12 stars? What do they represent? They represent Israel. All of Israel, the whole of the nation is going to come from the loins, from the wombs of the sons of Jacob and Rachel through their wives. The whole of the nation is going to be populated through them. It's, a, it's an image, it's a picture of Israel, the nation. The woman is Israel, the nation, symbolized by these celestial bodies. 
and Israel the nation. Please come on Sunday nights starting in January so we can tease all of this out and and ferret all of this out. Israel the nation exists, I said this a couple of weeks ago, for one central and supreme purpose. Israel exists to give birth to the child, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Israel exists to give fulfillment to the promise made to Abraham that in Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The promise made to Abraham is simply an enlargement upon a further explication of the original promise made in Genesis 3.15 from the seed of the woman. One descendant would come and when that one descendant comes, that one descendant will crush the head of the serpent, suffering a wound in the process. You see, it's all connected. Genesis Chapter 3, Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 37, Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. The woman is Israel, and out of Israel comes the Messiah, the warrior king, who will defeat and destroy evil and the evil one. And in that work all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Oh, how I'd love to take 15 minutes right now and just go around the room and ask you all about your ethnicity. Ethnos, the Greek word for group, people group, your ethnicity. Where do you people come from? You don't come from America, right? You come from Holland. You come from Ireland. You come from Jamaica. You come from Europe. You come from the nations. Some of the nations, not all of them, but you come from the nations of the world. And you are here. Because what was promised in Genesis 3.15, what was promised in Genesis 12, what was promised in Genesis 37, and what is described in Revelation 12 is being fulfilled, has been, and is being fulfilled. The woman gives birth to the male child. Who is the male child? We've already told it. We've already told you who the male child is. The seed of the woman who comes to bruise the head of the serpent. And who is the great red dragon? What is the great red dragon? Verse 9, a little bit farther down, tells us who the great red dragon is. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. The deceiver of the whole world, he's called in verse 9. When you go to chapter 20, and again, you've got to come on Sunday night so we can ferret all of this out. It's going to be great fun. That's my third promo. 
When you go to Revelation chapter 20, which talks about the, about the serpent being bound, being cast into the abyss, there is a specific reason why the serpent is cast into the abyss, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. He is bound in a particular way and for a particular reason, that he might no longer deceive The nations. Who is the great serpent? The one who deceived Eve. The one who from the deception of Eve across the whole of Old Testament history until the time of Jesus when the male child came kept the nations in bondage to darkness deceiving them. But what happens? The male child comes. And what's so striking about the text is that we move immediately in the text from the birth of the child to the enthronement of the child. You see that? She gave birth, verse 5, to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. We move right from the birth, the thing that we're celebrating here with this greenery and these candles and our trees and the lights on our bushes. We move right from the birth to his enthronement where the child rules and reigns over the nations with that rod of iron. What's missing? You know what's missing. What is missing from Revelation chapter 12? is the rest of the story, right? The intermediate, the intervening part of the story, the story after the birth of Jesus' life, his perfect obedience, and then his substitutionary death to secure salvation for those whom the Father had given him. And then following his death, his descent into hell where he is buried into the, in the ground where he suffers the full measure of the wrath of God experiencing the reality of death to rise victorious so that he then might ascend to the right hand of the Father and be enthroned as a ruling king with a rod governing all of the nations. It's an interesting passage just a couple of chapters before, chapter 10 in the Revelation. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. We will see, fourth promo, we will see on Sunday evenings that this mighty angel is in fact Jesus. And this mighty angel comes down from heaven wrapped in the glory cloud with the refulgent splendor of that glory emanating out from him with a rainbow over his head, his face like the sun, his legs like pillars of fire. He has a scroll in his hand and he put his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. What is that telling us? That is describing for us the rule and reign of the present reigning Christ over all the earth, land, and sea. He is presently ruling and reigning, having accomplished the work 
that the Father had given him to do. What's so striking about chapter 12 and the description of the dragon, the dragon has these seven heads and ten horns upon these heads, and then there are diadems upon these horns or upon these heads. All of these things are symbols of of sort of perfect power and whole and total and complete authority, biblical imagery employing biblical numbers to describe the totality, the completeness, if you will, of evil power, but not the totality of ultimate power, not the totality of ultimate authority. And this dragon who is clothed with these diadems, these symbols of governing power and authority, is always subject to the one who stands upon the land and the sea, who exerts his governing authority, his ruling power, the one who possesses the scepter, the ultimate rod of authority. This dragon is ever and always subject to his will. That is a central theme in the book of the Revelation. And if you read through chapters 12 and 13, you'll see phrases like this. And to him it was granted. And to him it was given. And to him he was given. To whom? To the beast. To the dragon. To the false prophet. By whom? By whom? By the son. The child. Seated upon the throne. Ruling. Reigning. Governing, who restricts, who limits, who tempers the evil authority, the evil power of the serpent. And all to the end that he might no longer deceive the nations. What happened? The promised child came into the world. The promised child who in Genesis 3.15 suffers a wound, but not a mortal wound. In the process of suffering, that less than mortal wound inflicts a mortal wound upon the serpent. So that now, by virtue of the finished work of the Son, The serpent is no longer able to deceive the nations. That's what happened. Jesus broke the power, the authority of the serpent, which power and authority had held the nations in darkness. What is happening? Here's what's happening. And you have to flip back to Luke in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, for one of the most exhilarating passages in all of the Bible. Jesus has sent out the 72 in the first part of this chapter. And the 72 go across the countryside two by two and they preach the gospel and they engage in deeds of kindness and mercy and then they come back 
they return to Jesus. And the return is recorded in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And look at what Jesus says. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now let me tell you something. Be real clear about this. Two things. This is not a a reference to the original fall of Satan from innocence and glory. We don't know a whole lot about that. What we do know is that this malevolent, Evil power has been at work from the very beginning, deceiving, seducing, destroying, robbing people of joy, robbing God of glory. That's what we know. And here's the second thing. What Jesus is referring to here is what happens when the gospel is preached. This is a picture. This is a snapshot of what will happen after the ascension of Christ, and after the Spirit is poured out upon the church, and after the church is empowered by the risen Christ to engage in the business of heralding and proclaiming the gospel. You see, there's always this already and ongoing and not yet reality that you have to recognize in the Scriptures. At the cross, in the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, the power of Satan was broken. His head was crushed. But he's like the chicken in the barnyard with his head cut off, still running around, still thinking he has life. And what do you have to do? You have to chase him down. And that's what the church is doing. The mortal blow has been inflicted. But now the church, by the power of the Spirit, continues in the preaching of the gospel to crush the head of the serpent so that captives are set free. That's what's going on. And that's what will continue to go on until the end of history. That's what we participate in as the church of Jesus Christ. There's so many themes that emerge from the revelation, from reading and thinking about the revelation. One of them is that the conflict isn't over yet. The woman in the wilderness, Revelation chapter 12, verse 6, and then later, in the later verses of chapter 12, the woman is in the wilderness. In other words, she is between her deliverance from bondage in Egypt and her final deliverance into the promised land. And that is the church. That is us, folks. We're in the wilderness. We're not at home. Home is coming. We're in the wilderness. But in the midst of the wilderness, we have the empowering, enabling presence of the Spirit and we are heralding this gospel. And from the nations of the world, God, through the heralding of the gospel, continues to crush the head of the serpent, free people from their bondage, and bring them into the life and liberty and joy of the kingdom of King Jesus. That's what's happening right now. And that's what is going to continue to happen until the time that Jesus returns 
to finish what he has started. It'll happen today and tomorrow and for the rest of history until that day when Jesus returns to complete what he has started. And when he completes what he has started, then what was read this morning will in fact come to pass, will be your experience and mine. Listen to these words again, because they are your hope and they are my hope. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And listen to this. The former things shall not be remembered or even come to mind. I will rejoice in Jerusalem. I will be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. And the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, and they shall not hurt or destroy ever in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. What's the meaning of the incarnation? Just this. In the incarnation, Jesus comes to pick a fight. He does battle with the serpent and he wins. He crushes his head and he continues to do it in and through his church until that day when there will never be any sound of weeping, no harm, no sadness. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you.